Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. This episode from the archives is a more recent one with the brilliant Julius Roberts. He used to be known on social media as Telltale Food, and a short time after we recorded, Julius had his very own TV show on Channel 5, which followed his life on the farm. Julius lives the kind of life that makes you want to immediately pack a suitcase, lock your door, and go and live in the country. He's basically living out all of our dreams and his food is seasonal, simple, but always so beautiful and you just know it's delicious. It's just the kind of food you want to dive into. So if you're in need of some escapism, I think this is the perfect episode for you and I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Julius Roberts. Julius is a first-generation millennial farmer and rising star of the food scene. In 2016, he gave up working at the acclaimed restaurant Noble Rot in London and swapped the rat race for an idyllic life of pigs, goats and chickens instead. His first foray into farming was a small holding in rural Suffolk, and then last year he moved with his family to a farm in Dorset. His charm and humble approach to life on the farm have seen him amass an army of followers online, as he shares the trials and tribulations of farm life alongside his menagerie of animals. Julius describes himself as a cook, farmer and gardener on a journey to self-sufficiency. In 2020, the Times named him as one of the best farmer foodies to follow on Instagram. He says his aim is simple, to educate his audience on topics including animal welfare and seasonal cooking. Welcome, Julius. Oh, thanks, Marty. That's such a lovely intro. (laughs) And Julius, I have to say, of all the guests we've ever had on Desert Island Dishes, I feel like you would thrive on a desert island. It would be my happy place, I've got to say. I've always loved my solitude. I think it's something that I kind of relish and need and really get lonely. So I'd be right at home. I'd be foraging. I'd be fishing. I'm sure I'd befriend some animals on the island. I'd have a, I'd have a lovely time. Yeah, I feel like you'd turn it into a small holding and have all sorts of <laughs> yeah. vegetables growing in no time and probably turn it into this amazing like tourist destination. Yeah, no, I would. I'd be very happy. Send me now. <laughs> it's feeling a bit like that, isn't it? It's been that kind of 18 months where I think lots of people would like to be sent to a desert island, perhaps. Well, I think a lot of people have had a really tough time, but us country folk have just been so lucky compared to most. You know, it's been a, it's just been a complete different story for so many of us out here. I think uh, you guys in the city had it really tough. I know your childhood was spent in London, but you did spend a lot of time visiting your grandmother in Suffolk, a woman that you have described as ludicrously elegant, very witty and fierce, a bit like the Queen. And (laughs) she sounds like she played a crucial role in your passion for food. So let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, you've hit the nail on the head. It was definitely my granny that sort of lit the spark, got me into the world of food. She was an amazing chef, way ahead of her time. She travelled to amazing places and would bring all sorts of dishes and ingredients back. And... Yeah, I mean, I adore her for it. I've got so many memories tied up in the food we ate with her. And 
I can't really pick one, but a few that spring to mind. She was a real awful lover. She was quite, you know, Fergus Henderson-esque. And she used to love kind of putting livers and tongues and all sorts of things on the plates in front of us at the age of kind of six, seven and watching us squirm. <laughs> a particular classic that, you know, now I absolutely love is she'd take um, le- liver, lamb's liver, and put on some seasoned flour with lots of cumin, salt and pepper and fry it really hot in butter. And you'd get this lovely, crispy, cuminy crust with this, you know, rare midder liver inside. And it was just delicious. She also did ox tongue with caper sauce, which, you know, now would be revolutionary. But back then it was just, you know, it's these old classics. Curried marrow soup. She was obsessed with curry powder. You know, she really was quite special. Yeah. And do you think her use of, of these unusual cuts and sort of trying to teach you about them, do you think that was sort of part of her teaching you to respect the animal and not letting any of it go to waste? Or was it just part of everyday life for her? Well, I think back then meat was used much more sparingly and things like liver and ox tongue were kind of cheaper and therefore, you know, they did use them because it was another way of getting meat on the table. You know, I wish a lot of those values still existed now, but sadly it's got so cheap we can all be eating meat all the time, which is you know causing all sorts of problems. She was also a fantastic forager. You know, I've got such fond memories going and picking damses with her and making dams and gins and jellies and she used to make this incredible elderberry sauce, you know, this deep wine red sauce that was, you know, full of tannins and sweetness and spices and serve it with things like panna cottas or whatever. And she had this pet budgie that I remember once was flying around and landed in the bowl, <gasps> this elderberry sauce, and then flew around the house, putting these red budgie footprints <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> oh, she sounds like an amazing woman. She was. Yeah, I miss her so much. I believe that you've said that you're one of those lucky people who knew very early on what you wanted to do in life and what you wanted to do was art. So you headed to Brighton to study sculpture. Tell us a little bit about that time. Yeah, so I did a a kind of beginner course in London, which kind of teaches you whether you want to, say, do painting or sculpture or printing and completely fell in love with sculpture and went to Brighton and had an amazing time. I was quite a romantic artist, I'd say, and was obsessed with the human form. And that's really where my passion was. And they kind of beat that out of me, which was a bit tough and, you know, put me onto the conceptual sculpture route, you know, much more abstract. But it was a, you know, that was quite a fascinating journey to undertake. And I was using things like chairs and beds to kind of you know, create that void of where the human figure would be, if you see what I mean. So I was still using the form, but these kind of placeholders for it. And a lot of it was installation where people seeing the exhibitions would then sit in the chairs themselves. But it meant that when I left uni, I got back to London and I was making these huge, wacky, welded steel sculptures. And I just, I just couldn't see that path working for me. I didn't understand how to make it work. I just saw, you know, debt and struggle So mum said, look, you know, you've always loved food. It's such a big part of you. Why don't you go and get a job in the local restaurant down the road? And I did. And, you know, it's kind of put me on this path. And it's one of the greatest things that I ever did, I think. But so having gone from someone who knew exactly what you wanted to do in life to them being someone who was wondering what they might do, was that daunting? 
I don't know. I, I mean, I, I really did have a, a, a very serious passion for food. It's such a big part of my family, how we socialize, how we live. You know, all my memories are tied up in food and those moments. And, you know, you have that kind of scent memory of tastes and flavors and places. So it wasn't a hard switch. You know, it felt very right. You know, maybe there was a week or two of mulling around and being a bit heartbroken at the thought of not doing art anymore. But food is such a good replacement. You know, the difference between sculpture and food is there's so many of those creative boxes still being ticked. So I feel very satisfied. That's so true. You step sideways rather than doing anything crazily different. Exactly. And and so your first introduction to the world of professional cooking was a local cafe in Shepherd's Bush, where I think you started as a waiter before you moved into the kitchen as a pot washer. What was that like? I got quite lucky there. It was a restaurant that had been down the corner from us uh, for ages. And I think it must have changed hands 11 times in nine years. They just couldn't get it right. It just didn't ever work for the area. And so when I was there, the flow of chefs in and out was so fast. I think we, lo- we lost three head chefs in the time that I was there. And it meant I went from kind of waitering to pot washing to actually cooking much faster than I think most people would. You know, it's a really lucky time. And the food was good. I mean, there were moments where I was quite shocked. You know, I remember kind of blue cheese dressings that came out of a squeezy tube that I just, you know, was so not me. And, you know, we used to plate up the parma ham before the service and we just have these stacks of plates of parma ham. And each plate of parma ham, when you sent it out, would have a little ring where the plate had been on top. And I, I kind of hated that. So there are a lot of things that really didn't jive with me in a nice way. I think it you know, taught me and showed me how passionate I was about that much more soulful kind of Italian, you know, proper English style of food that was simpler and more rustic and more natural, more like you'd have at home. And the manager there, I got on very well with. And he said, he said, look, Julius, you know, I can just tell that this place isn't right for you. I'm going to go and start working at this place. No, we and be the manager there. They're looking for the chefs now. You should definitely come and have an interview, which was such a stroke of luck. I mean, you couldn't make it up. And so I went there, did the interview with, you know, I had such little experience. I'd been working in this place for maybe six or seven months. And they just took a chance on me, I think, because it was a young restaurant. It was only just opening. It was also up in the air for them. They kind of saw my passion. You know, I could definitely talk about food to the end of time. And, you know, they, I love so many of the cookbooks that they loved. And they, they took a chance on me. But don't you feel like with things like that in life, like obviously there's luck involved and being in the right place at the right time. But sometimes I just think doors open when you're kind of on the right path and you're doing what you're meant to do like did it kind of feel a bit like that totally I mean looking back at how I've got to where I am now you know I know all these markers that have fundamentally changed my lives whether it be the the transition to noble rot or, or or simple things that have happened with animals that have completely kind of shaped my you know mental being and attitudes towards food and farming you you know you get these markers and you've got to be in the right place to take the opportunity yeah and it's literally I feel like I've had this quite a lot recently but it's looking back it's it's sort of very specific moments days hours conversations that you can pinpoint where those turning points were it's quite amazing I think when you look back and you sort of you think about those those moments in time yeah Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish you learned to cook. Oh, well, 
My parents and granny definitely were letting me cook from a very young age, you know, three, four, five. So I, I know that there's you know, great photos in the family albums of me making um, scrambled eggs for my parents' anniversary and bringing them up for breakfast in bed, which used to be such a big thing we did. So there's dishes like that. But I think the first thing I kind of really learned to cook and sat there reading about and, you know, toiling through recipes, trying to actually understand it was risotto. I used to lie in bed reading the Locatelli Made in Italy book at night and he has this chapter on risotto that is just pages and pages and pages long with everything from the stocks to the type of rice to the different techniques that, you know, the cornerstones of the recipe along the way. And I really tried to kind of learn it and understand it and then would make it again and again and again. And it was, I think, the first instance of me kind of really wanting to understand technique and, you know, why you do certain things when you do. Mm. And would you have had a specific? Um, sort of flavour combination that you were doing back then? Well, I mean, seasonality has always been how my family shops and eats. So, you know, depending on the time of year, it might have been a really lovely fresh one with kind of peas, broad beans and mint in spring. You know, maybe now it would be much heartier with, I don't know, pumpkin and sage. I'm sure I tried all sorts of things. I'm sure some of them were awful, but my parents (laughs) were always so nice about eating it and smiling and you know, accepting that I had to learn to get to deliciousness, you know, I'm sure they ate some very strange things along the way. That is the job of a parent. (laughs) (laughs) And so from that first job, as you say, you ended up at Noble Rot, you got a job as a commie chef. And it was the early days there. So there was a skeleton team and you were really thrown into the deep end. What was your experience like of, of working in a proper restaurant kitchen like that? It was tough. It was properly, properly tough. I was way out of my depth. You know, it's a baptism of fire. I got given a lot of responsibility, which I can't thank them enough for. And I really got the chance to kind of learn and be taught. And But it was just hard graft. You know, it was really early mornings, really late nights. I was always chasing my tail. I was always behind, always playing catch up. So stressed. You know, I've got the cuts and scars to prove it. But they taught me kind of how to season, how to work as part of a team, how to stay tidy when you're, you know, going under and in the worst place possible. (laughs) So I owe them, I mean, so much. And it will always be my biggest regret leaving. It's such a team, the restaurant kitchen. You know, if one person's going down, you all are. Because if the staffs aren't going out, you can't send the mains. So there's this real kind of helping attitude. And I loved it. But I was struggling, you know, you, you you feel this toll it takes on your body. And I think without the kind of experience, those early restaurant openings are really tough on someone. You know, I think if I'd gone to work first in the River Cafe, say, which has got its kind of settings perfectly organised, I might still be working in restaurants today. But I did just struggle and it took its toll on me. And so I decided I needed to make a change. Also, the River Cafe is a very unique setup because it's it's all open plan and very light. But a lot of restaurant um, environments, you're sort of underground, you don't see daylight. And I think you've described yourself as a, a relatively health conscious person. So those long hours and being in that kind of stressful environment, it must have really taken its toll on you. It did. It did. You know, I could feel myself withering. We had no daylight in the kitchen. There was no air con. It got to kind of 45 degrees in the summer. 
the restaurant lifestyle, because your hours are so weird and your days off tend to be kind of Sundays and Mondays, I wasn't seeing my friends that much. You were hanging out with chefs and, you know, it tends to just come with quite a hedonistic attitude towards life. And so you're kind of burning the candle at both ends and working your ass off. And it did just, you know, it had me kind of, you know, but burning out, to be honest. Mm. I, I always found working in a restaurant as well because you're you're cooking all of this amazing, delicious food, but the hours are so long that by the time you get home, you don't want to do any cooking. So actually chefs are kind of the least healthy people that you might come across because it's all just fast food and whatever you can eat just to, you know, for ease. Yeah, I've never fallen down the fast food trap. I'm someone who kind of really loathes that kind of stuff and would rather starve. You know, I don't mind being hungry at all. But we lived off Lucozades. Yes. Lucozades and Fernabranca. <laughs> <laughs> and it is such a steep learning curve going into a restaurant like that. And I know that you've said that doing that, you learned more than you would have done at any kind of cookery school. Do you think that in order to survive in that kind of environment, you have to have a real passion, not only for cooking, but in particular restaurant cooking and have grown up craving that particularly as a career? They're very different. Yeah. Home cooking and restaurant cooking are fundamentally different. I never really kind of got creative in the restaurant kitchen. You know, I was at the bottom of the pile. So it was the guys on top who were deciding the recipes. I was just being taught how to make them and then repeating them and making sure the seasoning was on point. But it's like, um, you know, practicing tennis, you go over the same swing, the same swing, the same swing, and your taste buds just do get finely tuned. And that is crucial. And the difference between starting in a restaurant and going to cooking school is that, you know, I got paid to go and learn to cook. Yes. So after spending quite a lot of money and being at uni for four years, it, it, it made so much more sense to just jump in at the deep end. But it probably also meant that I didn't stay there as long as I would have liked because it was such a shock to the system. Yeah, that moment when you finish uni and, and whatever your first job is that you start earning money, it's just such an exciting feeling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you've said that the biggest thing that you took from your time in the restaurant was probably the importance of produce and a real respect for seasonality of ingredients, which I know you've said that that's kind of how you grew up, but do you think that that experience did really open your eyes to the importance of it? Yeah, I think the biggest catalyst for me leaving was, you know, seeing the chef's admiration for the producers. It was a constant joy seeing these people turn up and the amount of work my head chef put into finding these people, these really interesting farmers doing, you know, brilliant things in the countryside. You know, restaurants kind of breed sustainable farming and breed animal welfare and breed quality because the better the produce coming in through the door, the better the food going out. And so seeing these amazing producers turn up with their boxes of veg and, you know, meats and whatever, looking all tanned and bright eyed and healthy and happy. <laughs> it was like, oh, I can still be really attached to the food world, but maybe, you know, have a slightly kind of different quality of life that might suit me more. I think actually that's really interesting point about the producers, because whilst the last 18 months, two years have been absolutely awful, one of the side effects has been that people, suppliers of restaurants have now opened their gates to actually supplying the public directly. So I feel like whilst there's been a lot of dark times, that might have been one tiny silver lining that we now have this amazing produce more readily available to the individual customer. Yeah, I mean, I take quite a hard line towards Corona. I think it's been dreadful and I've been so lucky. So it's difficult for me to talk about it 
uh, because of how much better my experience was compared to some. But we needed to learn some lessons, us humans. You know, we're making a lot of mess, we're causing a lot of trouble. And to be sent out of the supermarkets and towards more farmers and farm shops and, you know, different quality produce that's been made in a better way is has been such a blessing in disguise. I know. And there were times where obviously there wasn't anything on the supermarket shelves. So people were getting the boxes of vegetables and having to cook with what was available. And I feel like it brought out a lot of creativity in people that people didn't necessarily have, or perhaps they weren't interested in that kind of cooking before. Definitely. I mean, the rise in sourdough, the rise in learning all these things and reconnecting to our food will have massive reverberations for a long time. You know, we needed that reconnection. And it's come with quite a hard lesson, but, you know, sometimes these things do. And, you know, I'm glad that people have really gone out and looked for, you know, better quality stuff and we'll, we'll take that with them forever, I hope. Definitely. We've got to take the silver linings where we can find them. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was the hardest one to answer. And I'm going to go for the best meal I've ever eaten, not the best dish. And it's not necessarily the best kind of technical quality of dish I've ever had. It's not the best tasting, but it was this perfect harmony in time that I'll never forget where I was in the right mood, the right time, the right place, the right age. I just left Noble Rock, which was really hard. I, I hated letting them down after all they'd put into me and was a little bit lost sort of planning my next step. And I'd gone to Italy to stay with a friend who lives out there and... Instead of just going straight to house, I thought, I'm going to stay in Florence for a week on my own before. And I just spent this amazing time on my own, walking around the streets of Florence, eating like a king, kind of really experiencing Italian food. And there's something about being alone in a city like that and eating like that, that you're just so present. And I went to this little restaurant that she recommended called La Vecchia Batola, which is so good. Really hearty, proper trattoria. You know, there's a bottle of wine on the table before you come in that you don't even need to pay for. And... I had their famous vodka penne pasta to start, which was just mind-blowing. Then these fried courgette flowers with fried rabbit and sage leaves. I then had tiramisu, of course, my favourite pudding of all time. And kind of the chefs came and sat with me. They were so intrigued by this young guy, like eating out on his own in a country that he's not from. You know, I said that I'd been a chef and they kind of sat with me and drank with me. And we had Vincento and Cantucci at the end. And it was just one of those really formative meals that I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. That sounds absolutely amazing. Like something that you could never recreate, even if you go back there now. No, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. But it's a restaurant I always tell friends to go to. Yeah, and you're so right. There is something about going to a restaurant on your own that I guess it employs way more of your senses because you're sort of, you don't have anything to distract you. I think that's right. I've done a lot of traveling alone. And eating alone and it just it changes your experience people are much less afraid to come up to you because you're not in a group which is far more intimidating so you end up making amazing friends you're more present when you're eating you know you read books better when you're like you know there's a lot of good things about being alone yeah and i feel like people in the restaurant care a little bit more about you having a good time <laughs> i don't know i've just i've always slightly got that feeling I think that's right. I think they admire you. You're there for one reason and it's to eat their food and enjoy it. Yes, which as a restaurant owner or a chef or waiter, or whatever, that's what you want, isn't it? The highest praise. Yeah. 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 
So you ended up moving to a cottage in Suffolk to embark on this amazing adventure. But how did that come about? Because moving to the country is a dream that lots of people have. But you did it at a very young age and on your own. Were you apprehensive or did it seem like a very natural thing to do? I think I was very lucky in that my parents had this little cottage out in Suffolk right next to my granny. You know, we'd spent all our Christmases and Easter's there, but it's a big difference kind of living there full time on your own. But I just kind of leapt at the opportunity. I'd watched so much River Cottage as a kid and I kind of was so inspired by that. And I moved out there and I was kind of on my own for you know, three years just with my dog. And the first few months were incredible. It was like um, a love story of the land. You know, I was outside all day from dawn till dusk with my dog, walking through the woods. I had so little money. I was doing a lot of foraging and hunting rabbits and living off the land and just experimenting, exploring, reconnecting, slowing down, you know, smelling the seasons, experiencing it. It was such a monumental transition. And it's a time that I really miss, you know, now that I've got this kind of Instagram and this responsibility and I've got a lot of animals I'm looking after, it's changed a lot. And while I'm still outside, I'm kind of busier. That time I was so free and kind of young and I don't know, it was very special. I I think I was really lucky to experience it. Yeah, it sounds magical. And I think you made the move in the early winter, which that must have been quite a tough time to move to the country. Yeah, it was. It was. It was properly cold. Suffolk experiences that thing called the beast from the east very strongly. But it meant that I think the natural transition moving to the country would be to start by growing veg. But because it was the dead of winter, the ground was too hard to even put a spade in, let alone start growing something. So we, I, I decided to start by buying some pigs, uh, which are famously kind of the easy smallholder animal. They're uber tough, very simple to look after, very lovely things. And I'll never forget kind of hammering in these fence posts with these local country boys that I befriended. You know, the ground was rock hard. My fingers were kind of felt like the bones were shattering. It was so cold with each hit of the sledgehammer. But we built this very rickety fence in the middle of the woods. And I bought these three, no, four pigs, Snap, Crackle, Aldi and Pop. (laughs) These four mangalitsas who turned up in the back of someone's car in a dog crate. And I, she kind of wheelbarrowed them by the back legs into this pen. And I watched them just like explode into life. They were in these oak woods. You know, the ground was covered in acorns and leaf debris. They were untouched. They had a stream to drink from. And seeing these kind of natural instincts just come to life and their eyes just, oh, it was so beautiful. You know, they were playing with my dogs, playing with me. You know, I really sat with them and watched them and learn about animals and saw how clever and intuitive and sensitive and individual they are and was shocked about this. You know, it's not something we grow up knowing. You know, we have all these kind of children's stories, but animals are very simple in them. And to see the depth of these things kind of really um, woke me up to the issues of the world. Mm, I feel like pigs get a really bad rap i guess it's from sort of childhood stories and stuff but they're actually incredibly intelligent unbelievably clever they're the cleanest of all the animals they're the only animal that has a loo if it needs to pee or poo in the night it wakes up and it goes to its loo in its pen and it goes back to bed really you know they are really tidy yes they get muddy and they like to roll in their food when they're really happy but they are (laughs) cleanly and clever and 
such lovely beasts. Yeah. Who doesn't love to do that, Julius? <laughs> I know, I know. We've all been there. <laughs> and I think you said earlier that they're traditionally the easy place for a, you know, a starter farmer to begin. But d- was that your experience? Were they sort of easy to look after? Yeah, I had my pings for a long time and they never saw the vet once. There was a few escapes and a few funny stories. There was this one time, it was like a blissful December day really sunny really warm and I kind of woke up in this mood of just oh wow this is really special and I was walking down to my pigs with my bucket of food and I thought do you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna let them out (laughs) I'm gonna take them for a walk I'm just gonna walk them about the farm with my bucket of food (laughs) and I opened the gate and these four little tentative piglets walked out and for the first minute or so they were quite kind of you know sticking to me like glue and sticking to the pen and then suddenly this switch just went and the half wild boar aspect of Mangalitsa kicked in and these four pigs just went in four different directions and weren't listening to a word I was saying. And I'm in like big Wellington boots, overalls, winter jacket, running around like a headless chicken, um, trying to get them back. And I, I had to wrestle them. I had to kind of pull them by their legs, these four hundred kilo pigs with them kind of screaming and you know, we live next to a golf course and the thought of them getting onto the golf course and just ploughing through the greens was, you know, terrifying. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? <laughs> it took about an hour. I got them in, closed the gate and I, I fainted. I collapsed and <laughs> I got the most horrific cold afterwards because I'd sweated so much and taken my clothes off. It was such a learning, this kind of romantic little boy thinking he'd have a nice day with his pig, getting <laughs> taught the hardest of lessons. They had other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that is your favourite sandwich. My favourite sandwich. So I I thought about this a lot. I'm definitely a lover of sandwiches. I think the ultimate sandwich is that after a leftover bit of roast chicken. So it's the day after you've got the chicken carcass in its tray. You've got all the kind of jellied gravy. You've got some old squidgy potatoes. You've got a bit of salad that's kind of wilted from the lemony dressing. You've got some aioli, some bits of fennel. And you get some toasted ciabatta, kind of dunk it in the jellied gravy, squish in the potatoes, some chicken, bits of skin. And I mean, it doesn't get much better. Dunk it in the aioli, heaven. Ah, uh, Jeanette, that actually has made me think of um, friends with the Thanksgiving or the Christmas sandwich with the moist maker. I think the gravy really does make all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> also... We often will, we do quite a lot of outdoor cooking here where we might go to the beach or into the woods. And I do think some sausages cooked on the fire in the woods in a little bat with some mustard and homemade ketchup is pretty heavenly as well. So hard to beat. Julius, you're making me want to move to the country immediately. You grow a lot of your own fruit and vegetables and you rear animals. This is a journey to self-sufficiency. But what is the time frame for that? Is it something that you see happening in the next five to 10 years or is it a lifelong process? I've never kind of thought of it as this hard finishing point, more an attitude and an ideal Mm. and a kind of, you know, perfection to always strive for. A big part of the farm now is because we've got a bit more space um kind of working a bit less on the growing for me aspect but transforming the farm into the perfect habitat for biodiversity and all aspects of nature so at the moment we're doing a lot more kind of rewilding and 
re-establishing old meadows and putting the old hedges back in that we found from satellite images, you know, 20 years ago. Wow. So that's kind of the shift of focus. But in terms of, you know, veg and produce, I, I do grow, you know, a massive amount of my own food. I do a lot of preserving and fermenting at this time of year to kind of, you know, maximize the stuff that I've grown through winter when things get a bit colder and a bit quieter on the veg front. I grow more than enough animals for me. And, you know, we rarely eat meat bought from anywhere else and actually sell quite a lot to kind of friends and family and neighbours around. And we're going to start looking into kind of heat source from the ground so that our energy is coming from from nature rather than, you know, unsustainable ways of creating energy. So it's a it's a real ambition, but it's a kind of more of an attitude. And you're a first generation farmer, which is kind of amazing because I have to think that must be quite unique. Farms are normally passed down through families and they sort of work on them together. How has it been starting out solo without the advice of previous generations? And how did you know where to begin? Well, I didn't really. I've, I've learned it all as I've gone along. The farming community is incredibly generous and there's a lot of kind of help and advice and sharing that goes on down here without money changing hands. So there's a lot of swapping some straw for some honey or getting some mash from a brewery in return for, you know, a bit of pig so that you kind of feed your pigs for free and then they get some pork in return. And I've had such amazing advice on the way, but I've also just never been afraid to make mistakes. I've been taught some pretty hard lessons, you know, when animals get ill and I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, animals die, uh, crops fail because you planted something too densely. But I think being afraid to make mistakes is just crippling. You know, it's the best way to learn. If you learn something the hard way, you never forget it. And it's such a joyful way to learn in this kind of free spirited, you know, jaunty kind of, I'm just going to see what happens. So I think it's been really special. And I think farming's having a bit of a tough time at the moment. It's constantly in the press. Farmers are being given so much jip. And you know, part of me thinks kind of quite right. We really need change to happen. We need it to happen fast. But they work so hard. You know, I get up pretty early, but I guarantee you that when I look out my window, there's a tractor already running around. The farmer's been up since five and he'll be going to bed at kind of 12 at night. And, you know, they really do try so hard. So there's a joy in being a first-gen farmer and kind of taking on a lot of these modern attitudes towards sustainability and regeneration and things like that. But equally, I think those inherited farms where they've been working their asses off for centuries need to be given a bit more respect and, you know, have their hands held towards change through us buying the right way and shopping the right way and helping them out rather than just criticising and you know, giving them a hard time. Did you watch the Jeremy Clarkson's farm program on Amazon? Have you seen any of that? I, ha- I haven't seen any of it yet, but I've only heard good things. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was really, my brother-in-law is a farmer. So I sort of feel like I have firsthand experience of of how hard it is. But I feel like, yeah, Jeremy's program really did highlight exactly how hard these farmers are working. And And I think what you said earlier about the showing them respect um, is something that we've definitely lost. And and I think that's due to the sort of disconnect that we have with the food that we're eating and and where it's coming from. I couldn't agree more. It all comes back to kind of reconnecting. You know, we need to understand more about what they're doing. We need to understand more about the choices we make in the shops and what effects that have. You know, if you buy meat that is below this certain price, you know, we need to understand that the quality of life that the animal will have then lived is frankly immoral. 
But it's because it's so hidden and we're so disconnected that these things be allowed to go on. You know, I think it's never been more important. We've only got so long before the damage we're doing is irreversible. You know, the time is now to wake up. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. Well, (laughs) being out here and having all these animals, my life has got a nice kind of routine to it. And in the morning... I wake up, I go and let the chickens out, I'll go and feed the goats, I'll have a walk around the fields and make sure there aren't any sheep kind of stuck in brambles or with their heads through the fence or something, give the dogs a bit of a walk. And then I get back with everyone fed, having had a nice walk and made through all as well. And I'll look in the coop and find an egg. Generally, it'll still be warm, having just been laid, and I go inside and The joy of a fresh egg is that when you poach them and crack them into a pan, you don't need to spin the water. You don't need any vinegar. It doesn't need to be cold. They're so fresh, they stay in the exact shape that they were inside the shell. And I'll have a poached egg every day in all sorts of different ways. You know, sometimes it's just really buttery toast, salt and pepper. But other times it's with some homemade chili sauce, some sauerkraut, some hot smoked salmon or some veg from the garden. That kind of daily poached egg is such a special part of my morning. Ah, heaven, heaven. What an amazing way to start the day. Going back to just what we were talking about, do you think that it's possible for us as a society to rectify our mistakes and go back to the simpler way of eating? Or do you think that the supermarkets are just too entrenched in the way that we live our lives? I don't have much faith in the supermarkets, I've got to say. Money is very poisonous when it comes to people making changes, especially those that are earning a lot of it from kind of not good things. But I think I, I'm hopeful in people. You know, I'm hopeful in those of us at home waking up and caring and, you know, not going to the supermarkets or not buying that bag of potatoes that is in plastic, but buying the loose ones or, you know, choosing something that's organic over something that's not. I, you know, you have to hold on to hope. I, I'm not one to give up. I think we've got very little time. And I think it is literally a knife edge, whether we make it or don't. But if we don't, we don't deserve to, you know, we are the makers of our own destiny and I'm hopeful. Mm. And I think it's difficult. My generation are in a position where we have to think about whether we want to have kids or not. You know, it really is getting that bad. You know, what's the world going to look like in 60 years? But I do hold on to hope for humanity's sake, because it's a very special place, this planet that we live on. And I desperately don't want us to ruin it. Mm. You moved from Suffolk to Dorset last year with your family, making the move in the middle of the first lockdown, I think, which must have come with its own challenges. I heard you describe transporting your beehives, which sounded very funny. (laughs) Yes, it was quite mad. In terms of the kind of corona aspect, we had to use delivery farms and stuff that were all run by families, so they're in their own bubbles, and it was really quite complex on that front. But I did a lot of the moving myself with my truck and trailer, And yes, I had some pretty hairy six hour drives, but the beehives particularly were a bit mad. We we wrapped them up in duvets in the dead of night, in the dark, tied them really tight in the hope that the bees wouldn't escape. And I had them in the back of my truck, you know, wearing my bee suit for six hours. Oh my goodness. With the chickens in the back next to them as well. (laughs) And they were definitely very angry when we turned up and you could hear the hive kind of roaring (gasps) in that it had been vibrated for so long. And we decided not to let them out straight away and kind of let them settle and calm down. And eventually we did, opened up the duvet. And it's amazing when you watch bees in a new location, 
they have to set out their maps and they come out of the hive and fly in these concentric circles up in the air, essentially kind of getting bigger and bigger in their loops, kind of mapping out where they are and creating these routes home. Um, so it was a pretty amazing thing to watch. Yeah, how incredible. So how many bees do you have? Well, I've got two hives and in a healthy hive, you might have something like 40,000 bees. So, wow, you know, we're close to 80,000 bees or so. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I had no idea it was that many. Yeah, so in the summer, when there's obviously a lot of food about and the bees are very busy, you can have vast hives. And then in the winter, they throw out anyone who's not needed. All the male bees get thrown outside and they go into a much smaller group and huddle around the queen and they gently vibrate their wings to keep her warm and kind of hibernate through winter in this much smaller number. And then from spring onwards, it grows and grows and grows and can get up to 60,000. So what do you do if you're one of the male bees that's been thrown out? You die. Oh, right. There's no place for males in the bee world. Yeah, the males are called drones and they're kind of bottom of the pile. They're just there for mating and not much else. And they get killed and they get they get their wings pecked off, uh, bitten off by the females and sent outside. Wow. Okay. Bees are very much a female entity and they run their they run their home very well, I've got to say. There's a lot to learn from bees. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like the um story loop of a Beyonce song almost. Like <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. I think the thing that I cook most when I'm having a lot of people around is slow roast lamb. I've got a lot of sheep on the farm and it's really fantastic stuff. They live a very long life. They eat nothing but grass. They never see antibiotics or anything like that. And it's, you know, just a really special thing to give people this thing that I've grown. And I, you know, know that it's lived a life as close to the natural and real thing as possible. So you do this lovely slow roast lamb, lots of wine, anchovies, rosemary, garlic, cook it for five hours at a really low temp till it's kind of falling apart and you can serve it with a spoon, maybe with some lovely creamy polenta and dark, dark cavolo nero. It's a pretty heavenly dish and it's something I'm always writing down the recipe for people to take home. Oh, that sounds incredible. And would you serve a pudding? Yeah, I mean, puddings, uh, depending on the time of year, like right now we're in the lovely fruit season, so it might be an apple and blackberry crumble or something like that. Julius, I bet you have people queuing up to come to one of your dinner parties. <laughs> we do. We do love to cook for people. And that's the joy of cooking is to share. And on Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? In terms of my favourite actual cookbook, it's the St. John cookbook. But my most treasured cookbooks are my granny's notebooks from back in the day. She has these as my favourite thing that I have of hers that is just the perfect way to remember her. She's got these lovely notebooks that are so cool. I wish people did it now. They have a little table square and every single lunch or dinner party she ever did, she wrote down the place names where everyone sat. She wrote down what she cooked, how much it cost. If there was a really good recipe that went well, she'll put that in. If someone wore something particularly outrageous, like a short skirt or a silly hat, she'd <laughs> jot that down. My grandfather's a really slow eater because he's quite blind and she'll always have Peter ate too slowly, must give him a smaller portion. <laughs> it's this lovely kind of collection of all of her best moments because cooking, you know, was just the heart of her life. And so I've got all her favourite recipes, all her best um, meals, all her favourite moments. It's really special. I properly treasure it. Yeah, what an amazing thing to have. It's almost better than a diary. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's so intimate in a way. It's what she loved most. 
Yeah. Right. I can't believe it, but we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I love asking people what their like death row meal would be. It's such a nice way to get to know someone and what they kind of care about and value, whether it's, you know, an elegant meal or something delicious or something that their mum cooked or whatever. But for me, I'd start with, um, I think, either an aubergine parmesan or some like uh, pumpkin ravioli with sage butter, just nice and simple. For my main, I'd love something that I couldn't cook. And I'm such a lover of Japanese food. It's something that I don't even dare try cooking because it, you know, it takes years of experience. We've all watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi and, you know, the poor son's there who hasn't been allowed to cook anything but rice for 20 years. (laughs) But it's something that I really love going to eat when I'm in London or away, say. So I'd have, there's this great restaurant in London called Koya. I don't know if you've been, but they do the most amazing udon noodles in broth. And I'd have a bowl of hearty udon noodles, maybe with some shiitake and a tempura prawn. I just love that kind of thing. And then for pudding, it would always be tiramisu. It's my absolute dream. Oh, that sounds like an incredible combination. And I think lots of people might be wanting to join you for that last meal, Julius, before we roll. Yeah, well, I'd want a nice full table for sure. (laughs) Before we roll you off to the island. Julius, those were your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Margie. It's been such a pleasure taking part in this. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. You can sign up for the newsletter, find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to Cook's Matches, our sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.